Russia is a leading exporter of so many things Americans need, like oil, tracksuits, and scary pornography. <laughs> yeah, and who knows? One day your country could be as happy as we are here in Russia. We are not divided. <laughs> um, you know, like you, because all our people... We are not divided like you, because all our people are so glad for their freedoms. So America, it's going to be a long four years for many of you. But remember, we're in this together. And live from New York, it's Saturday night! Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week we'll be discussing Season 42, Episode 12 of Saturday Night Live with host Aziz Ansari and musical guest Big Sean. I'm John Murray and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. And you can connect with us at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out, and they're greatly appreciated. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Aziz Ansari. We are now officially in the era of Trump, and it has not been a very good week for Katie Rich. She's an SNL writer. I believe she focused mainly on Weekend Update and... Uh, apparently during the inauguration, she got a little worked up and maybe tweeted something that she should have reconsidered just to frame this. We got some feedback on it. So this is what we're going to unpack here. Let's just uh, take a look at this feedback here from Reddit user Southside trash. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Katie rich mini scandal specifically. How accountable do you think the show should be? for the off-screen, off-color comments made by its staff. Thoughts? Well, if it were up to me, you know, on behalf of SNL, I would keep distance from this until there was reason to believe that I needed to say something. Sure. So at this point, I think SNL should uh, basically just stay silent on the issue and make this Katie Rich's problem, basically. You know, as heartless as that sounds... It would not be a good idea for SNL to be proactive and get out ahead of this and make this something that's representative of the show unless it's absolutely necessary. So right now, I think Katie Rich is the one who needs to apologize and save face. And if that's enough, then that's great. So you're thinking if the show comments on it, it's kind of like they own it at that point. Like they're accepting the premise that somehow they're responsible or obligated to deal with this matter. And you're thinking maybe just let it let it ride. Well, yeah. Okay. From a PR perspective, there's been controversial statements from like Michael Che. He's been in trouble a couple of times. And that's not something that SNL felt the need to to get out there and, and release a press conference. So I think, well, I'm pretty sure they're going to do the same thing with this. Okay. Only time will tell on a lot of this. <laughs> We've talked in the past about my very strong views about how much I hate seeing people just go off on these 24 hour hate rallies on Twitter and how it has the potential to ruin people's careers and lives. And it's just really a, what I feel to be a really uh, sad, <laughs> sad aspect of our internet culture on this though. 
I don't feel it's as cut and dry. I'm, I'm a little conflicted actually, because even though generally speaking, my thought is, Hey, these are comedy writers. They make jokes. Not every joke lands. Not every joke is well thought out. Uh, emotions come into play. I mean, this was during the inauguration. So here's Katie rich watching the inauguration, probably a little emotional, a little worked up, maybe looking to lash out a little bit and she just didn't play it smart. So there's a lot of, I have a lot of sympathy because I, I understand that not everything that comes out of our mouths is what we, a more measured version of us would have in hindsight said, we all say dumb things and it shouldn't be the end of the world. Every time someone tweets something that maybe gets taken the wrong way, or maybe they just, <laughs> just weren't, weren't thinking clearly. And it was a, a poor thing to say. I don't think that that should just be uh, as huge an issue as it often becomes. But the other side of this is I kind of subscribe to the, <laughs> the mafia creed of women and children or family is off limits, right? Like politics, we know that's a dirty game. There's a lot of mudslinging. There's a just, you have to have a thick skin to be in it and it's not always, always virtuous. Yeah. So there is a dark aspect to it. And if you get into politics, you get into it knowing that that's just part of the the job and that you're going to be beaten up a little bit. And that's just fair game. You're fair game if you're a public official. Right. But I think it's generally understood that family's off limits. That's just how it's supposed to be. And people don't always follow those rules, but I think that that's just generally where common courtesy and decency and just a, a general notion of where the line should be. I think that's pretty firmly established. And so in this case, as much as I can sympathize with how worked up she probably was. I mean, a lot of people were, I mean, there's a lot of people marching in the streets. She's not the only one that probably was thinking some inflammatory thoughts. She, you know, chose to put them out there and it really wasn't a smart move. And I don't, I don't think the joke was funny (laughs) and I don't think that her target was appropriate. So I really do think it was a misstep and that there is some accountability on her part. But at the same time, I think about if this was just any other like office and someone said something that someone was offended by, or just really said an off color remark that was just genuinely offensive, you know, you get a slap on the wrist, you have to mea culpa and you get a a citation in your file, right? Right. You know, if you're not generally speaking a problem, everybody understands that people misspeak, people say dumb things and we're not always in a good mood. You just, you come to work crabby and sometimes you just bite someone's head off. You just, you have to account for human imperfection in this equation. And that's why generally speaking in regular life, not on the internet where everyone's anonymous and can, you know, can build these, these mass movements of, (laughs) of, uh, witch huntery. But in regular life, we just recognize that, no, you know, it's kind of a three strike thing. We just don't fly off the handle. We, we recognize that there's always a chance to redeem yourself and make good. And, and these small little things are small little things. And so I'm very much of two opinions here that on the one hand, it shouldn't be a big deal. I think this kid's going to pull through. She didn't call for violence. She didn't break any laws. It was free speech when it comes right down to it. And whether it was in good taste or not, so be it. I don't think that her career should be in jeopardy over it. Agreed. Yeah. I just think that she should probably just come out and clear the air. Yeah. Like I, I'm not going to say that this was appropriate in any way. Yeah. I'm, I'm with the, the school of thought that this was an inappropriate comment, not really called for, for a lot of reasons, the subject matter, as well as the, the target who really didn't do anything. I mean, it's the son of Trump and, and not Trump himself, who's done a lot to, to merit the mud that we sling at him. Right. But this is just a kid. Now, for Katie Rich 
to be blacklisted over this, that's where I would draw the line. Yeah. You know, she, she does need to own up to it and apologize and take whatever flack as a result. But I don't want her to have a, a career ruined over this. But with that said, gears might already be turning in this respect. Now, I don't have any concrete information other than what I'm going to lay out here, but I have a little bit of speculation on what's going on at SNL right now. She wasn't included in the credits for last night's show. And she has been consistently prior to that. So it's very possible that some action internally has already been taken. That might be a suspension or it could be a firing. We don't really know. There's no official word on it, but the fact that her name was missing, that is a clear signal that this hasn't gone unnoticed that the show, at least internally, the production, there has been some behind the scenes activity going on. That, that is a reaction to it for sure. Now this could be a permanent thing. We may never see her name on the credits again, right? Or, you know, they just took it off for the time being until this all blows over. Right. And maybe it's a a suspension. Like you said, time will tell. Yeah. It's really hard to say exactly what's going on. And a lot of it really just isn't our business. What happens at the show is, is the show's business. Whatever's going on. I really sympathize with her. I don't agree with what she said. And like I said, I I think the appropriate response is to come out and make a measured statement. That's uh, appropriate for the transgression. Like just make it right. Do what you're supposed to do to clear the air and have everyone call off the dogs and then hope that, you know, you can salvage your job there and everything can go back to normal. I just, I would just really hate to see long-term repercussions from something that really, when it comes right down to it, shouldn't be considered that big of a deal. Agreed. All right. So with that said, let's jump into the cold open this week. We get a paid message from the Russian Federation, our favorite new bet character, Pootie has come to reassure the American public that don't worry, your country is in good hands. Booty. Yeah. So what did you think? It's really good stuff. You know, it's not surprising to see Beck Bennett's Putin be given this much screen time and making him the center of focus because he's really made this his own character. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really been fleshed out. And the, the shirtless thing, you know, that's pretty much hard, hardwired into this uh, performance now. We're never going to see the, uh, Putin with a shirt on on <laughs> SNL. That's that's pretty much certain. Yeah, it was uh, it was a great cold open, and you know it was interesting to see Olya Povlatsky used in a different capacity than mm-hmm. we normally see her. Yeah, that was fun. I thought it was nice to remind us that it is possible to do a cold open that isn't a Trump press conference or a a political debate. We've been very much in that narrow channel for the first half of the season being very tightly focused on Trump and his doings that it is nice to get a little bit out of the box and explore this character that, like you said, every time we see it, it's getting a little bit better, a little bit more fleshed out his facial expressions and just his control of the performance is really getting tight. Now I I thought it was a, a good pivot for the show to bring him in. And I thought it worked really well. Yeah. Okay. So that's enough about the cold open. Let's talk a bit about the monologue. Aziz Ansari comes out, and he is ready to fix America with his buttery smooth standup. This was a very controlled and very poised and confident monologue, in my opinion, compared to what we've seen on the last few episodes. What was your takeaway? I, I don't know if I was expecting a whole lot because I'm not actually a big fan of Aziz and Sari's standup, but this is some of the best material I've heard him do. 
And maybe it's because it's topical and it's stuff I want to hear about. But I think he really killed it in terms of timing and subject matter. And, you know, if a lot of this stuff was written for this monologue specifically, it was really well polished. You know, this was an A-plus monologue. You know, I was expecting to get maybe a B at most out of it. Okay, fair enough. I had really high hopes for it, and I wasn't disappointed. I do like his stand-up, and he's got two or three specials on Netflix now, and I thought every one of them was pretty solid. He's an acquired taste because he does have a lot of energy, and (laughs) he's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but I think he's infectious. And this monologue... I actually found it to be more controlled and more measured than I was expecting from him. I thought he was just going to be kind of spazzy and just try and win the the crowd over with his energy and his antics. But it was surprisingly smart how he was able to take some very poignant topics and make very good points about those topics and not let it feel preachy, but instead come across as a joke first that just happens to have that social awareness baked in. That is a very tough line to walk. And it's very hard for comedians that want to say something important to figure out how to make the funny happen and the, (laughs) and the point land. And he did it like two or three times over in this, he made some really solid points. And just when you think that, okay, he's, he's getting a little serious and I'm, he's maybe going to lose me. He pulls out the punch and it, it lands and it just works. The, the George Bush thing in particular, I thought was an incredibly smart way to frame how disenfranchised he is with Trump. I don't know what he could have done better personally. This was just great. I don't know. I don't know how he delivered it as smoothly and as competently as he did with as little prep time as he must have had for a lot of the bits. So uh, great. I I thought he was in top form. Top form indeed. First sketch of the night. Beat the bookworm. What what was the premise of the sketch? Why was what what was the goof? Well, the premise here was something uh, akin to I guess you know are you smarter than a fifth grader or maybe beat the geeks. I don't know if you remember that show. I remember when Benstein's money, that was the one that popped into my mind. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of examples you could make, but basically it was a game show putting up regular contestants up against someone who's particularly book smart and is kind of hard to best when it comes to trivia knowledge. So, mm-hmm. you know, where the, the twist comes is that, you know, where he spent all this time <laughs> becoming book smart growing up and at his age would have been the 90s you know, he kind of missed out on what was going on around him at the time. So ironically, if 90s culture were to be a category on this show, he would be lost. And this just happens to be that episode. Yeah, the show found his Achilles heel and Vanessa Bayer is giddy (laughs) with the the prospect of being able to beat the bookworm. Right. My feeling was it kind of came and went kind of quickly. Did you have a similar feeling? Did you want more from this or was this satisfying? No, I was was satisfied with what we got. I did feel like there was a kind of a, a flow to this whole episode where, you know, we were getting through things kind of quickly. I don't know if mm-hmm. it was just I was having a good time or, or if the sketches were actually a little bit shorter, you know, per sketch. Once the premise is set, once you've riffed on it a couple of times, you know, there's not much else you can do with it unless you start introducing whole new elements to explore. Yep. But there's not a lot of elements you could branch off from this. So maybe it is, it makes sense that they got through it rather quickly. 
I probably just had oversized expectations. I just assumed that we were going to have another lightning round or just something that was going to kind of like bring everything full circle or bring it home. But if the whole goof really is just, yeah, he's out of his element, there's nothing he can do to compete with this kind of subject matter. If that's the whole joke, then it came and went as quickly as it should have. If that was the height that they were reaching for. One of the things that I usually critique sketches for and and appreciate about sketches is whether they overstay their welcome or whether they get in and get out quickly. And so by that measure, if that was what they were going for and that was as far as they wanted to take it, then I'm glad that they did get out as quickly as they did. My only other thought on it is Aziz Ansari does not do muted or nuanced. (laughs) No. The thing that makes him so fun to watch on a show like SNL is really just how he's able to turn it on and be over the top and hundred percent committed to the, the energy level <laughs> of his character. So I really, I really thought that he nailed his part of this, just being this jerky snively bookworm, <laughs> uh, but playing it up, you know, being insulting and just overly confident, everything that he brought to his character, I thought was really fun and worked really well. Yeah. And it worked for the sketch because where he had, it turned up to 11, and kind of, you know, taunting the the contestant and talking down to them, just being overly confident that they're going to win. And then being forced to eat crow, that made that reveal that much more funny because he was so over the top with that character. Right. It was that much more delicious. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the La La Land interrogation sketch. The setup here is a perp has been brought into the interrogation room. Cecily and Beck come in as good cop, bad cop. And they are trying to get to the bottom of why this guy had a lukewarm reception to the movie La La Land. Was this fun for maybe as limiting as that joke you you would assume might be? I don't know. They like, it's hard to say because I never, I never saw La La Land. I don't know if that's a crime in itself, but, but it is clever to have, you know, aggressive interrogating cops, you know, be the ones to enforce this idea that everyone should love it and should not find any fault in it. Yeah. It really, it really worked uh, as a, uh, as a topical piece. And I think they, they found a good angle to get the most laughs out of that idea. Yeah. It's kind of the, what happens when someone has the kind of passion for a film that these Oscar type of films uh, evoke, what happens when that person actually has the authority <laughs> to literally beat that passion <laughs> into someone who maybe has a dissenting opinion that that was funny. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that. They played up a lot of the, the good cop, bad cop tropes. I didn't feel like this was the strongest entry of the night. I thought it had its place. I thought it was overall a well-rounded sketch and it was enjoyable, but it didn't, uh, it didn't really like enrapture me. I guess that's the only thing I'll say it was a win, but it wasn't just like, I just didn't walk away from it saying that's genius. Yeah. Okay. With that said, we're going to take a look at our first pre-tape, which is Kellyanne Conway's Chicago-esque musical victory lap. Thoughts? It's it's a forgettable sketch, basically. It's a forgettable pre-tape, and it's just form over content, I find. I love Kate's Kellyanne Conway. I always have. And I've always been attracted to Kate, to, so to see her <laughs> doing burlesque is like kind of a treat. But... That's not why we're here. <laughs> From a comedy perspective, I think this needed a little more uh, life breathed into it. I'm really about 180 degrees in the opposite direction on this one. As far as I was concerned, it was a really entertaining romp. I thought it was really well directed. I thought the way that they kind of dissolve from her 
in reality in the middle of the CNN interview into her fantasy megalomania. I thought that that was just really well realized visually. The parody of the song was spot on. I thought lyrically, one of the big things that I sometimes have a problem with, with their music sketches when they do these pre-tapes and try and make a lot of comedy into a song is that lyrically and pacing wise, it's hard to get a lot of jokes into a song. So in this case, I thought that the format of the song was just perfect. The phrasing of the song lent itself to being able to craft a lot of jokes and and have them read. Like you understood them. You could parse what you were hearing. Whereas like a, a quick rap song or some of the other genres that they've played with, it's a little bit harder to hear the joke in it. I thought everything about this played flawlessly. I thought it was true to the character. Like what's she going to be thinking this? She's on top. She took the impossible task of turning Trump into something palatable enough to become president. And she pulled it off and she can say anything, whether it's true or alternative, true or whatever, (laughs) you know, it's like, she's unstoppable right now and she's full of herself. And this found a really fun and engaging way to put that up on screen. And then you've got Kate's performance on top of it, which I don't think we can find fault with that. So to me, this was a win end to end, like top of the night kind of a win. Yeah. That's a bit of a different perspective. (laughs) I just would have thought that you would be all about this. You have, you have your own kind of theatrical and performance background. And usually you really connect with these kind of things. So I'm just surprised that this, this didn't land for you. You're, you're right about the direction and, and you know, the visuals and the whole transition from the new set to the, open void space that they do their musical number in. That's all really well done. I just felt that the comedy within it was forgettable. That was my only issue with it. Okay. Yeah. Like I agree with a lot of your points, but sure. Just didn't work for me as a comedy piece is all. This to me seemed like this, this made the show. I mean, the show was great end to end and Aziz Ansari was a great host. There was, there was a lot of greatness in this episode. I just thought this was right up there and I'm just really, really surprised, but let's not harp on it. Okay. Let's talk about Broderick and Gans, attorneys at law. This is a live sketch. It's Kate McKinnon and Bobby Moynihan are a lawyer duo. And it's one of those typical uh, ambulance chaser law firm commercials that we all know so well. The Sam Bernsteins. (laughs) The Jim Shapiro's. Yeah. We, We know the kind of commercial that they're, they're riffing on. Was this fun? Did we enjoy this? Oh, absolutely. You know, Bobby Moynihan is always appreciated when he pops up and has something to do, which isn't a whole lot this season for some reason. Yeah, this was, I mean, it was a hilarious premise. Not, nothing that was totally obvious. Like this was not something that anyone could come up with. This was, this was some really clever creativity going on to tailor a sketch like this. Yeah. I thought it was really good. It didn't have to be as smart as it was. It already would have been kind of clever if the whole height of the sketch was Aziz Ansari is frustrated because he realized that he did not get a good return. Whereas all the other people in the commercial did, like it could have just been his frustration carrying the whole sketch, but they build in a whole B plot of slowly establishing and revealing the backstory of how this incompetent lawyer got hooked up with this spitfire lawyer, you know, who gets results. And then you've got the other guy who's an incompetent boob and can barely stand, um, no kidneys, you know, like they just keep going deeper and deeper down the well of why this character has no business representing people in a courtroom because the sketch was smart enough to go in that direction and, and bring that back full circle and didn't just rely on that initial goof of Aziz Ansari being frustrated. That to me was clever and smart and really made the sketch for me. 
Right. When I saw what, where it was going with the $6,000 versus $1.2 <laughs> or $2 million, yeah. okay, it's going to be Aziz complaining about the money he had. But yeah, like they fleshed it out and created such a entrancing story out of it all <laughs> with the no kidneys, the fact that he blacks out. <laughs> And that he had to defend himself for, for a portion of the case. Like, that was all really good stuff. Bobby, especially with his performance as a guy who, where something is a little bit off. Yep. It was nuanced enough. It was basically the opposite of Aziz. It was it was contained and it was subtle. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the fact that he put a book away in quotes. <laughs> it's just these little hints that his mind is not working as it should. It was It was really well done. Yeah. It was nice that when they first cut to the lawyers and they first get their, they're kind of like their tagline, like their pitch, they didn't make his first statement that like retarded. <laughs> Are we allowed to say that? <laughs> Am I going to get a, a lot of Twitter hate, but you know what I mean? Like you don't immediately realize that he is significantly inferior to Kate. It's not till they go back to it two or three times that he keeps getting more and more incompetent looking. And it's nice that they, they didn't just come out swinging with that, that that they let it build and swell and revealed the story in phases. Each time they go around the circle, you get a little bit more of his condition. That was just the right way to unfold this sketch. And it was really satisfying because you wanted to hear more. You, you couldn't wait for Aziz to start complaining because he's going to tell you a little bit more of what led to this situation. So everything about it structurally performance wise, and just how smart that weaving that second storyline in to me, it just really felt like a satisfying little endeavor. Yeah. Brian McKelleny and Nick Coker, that was their baby. And Kristen Bartlett was also involved in that one. Oh, it was Britannic, was it? Yeah. Okay. Now before the season started, you had checked out their stuff and you said, I really like these guys. They have a fun kind of subversive way of being able to riff on common everyday things. And maybe that's a little bit of what we're seeing here is just a little bit more brilliance than the sketch needed because of their perspective and the craft that they brought to the show from their, their prior troupe. Now that you say that I should have known from the beginning that this was these guys. Cause it's totally their bag. Yeah. This sketch was fun. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a nice little, <laughs> nice little outing. And with that said, let's talk about big Sean. He is a local Detroit boy. So I feel obligated to like him, but I don't. <laughs> what did you think about his two performances tonight? His first performance was bounce back. And his second performance, Sunday morning jetpack. Was there anything here that that you appreciated or took away? I don't see anything special about this guy, you know? Yeah. It was it was good enough. It was an acceptable performance. And I just felt like he, as an artist, it was pretty generic. Mm-hmm. I actually was just a little put off by the whole thing. I just felt like he wasn't bringing anything terribly innovative or fun or exciting to the stage. I felt like there were moments in the song where this might be intentional. It seems like there's a lot of rappers that do this. I've noticed this a little bit from Drake too, where it almost seems like they intentionally drone a little bit. Like they come off a little flat. And even when they're doing the hook of the song, not like the actual rap part, like, but if they're singing their own hook, it seems like the melodic parts, they stay a little bit more monotone or a little flat. And that just might be a stylistic choice. I don't know, but it just really grates on me. I just felt like, 
this particular rap style doesn't engage me. And then this person as an artist, I couldn't find anything memorable in what he was doing or bringing to the performance to elevate a genre that I'm already kind of cold on. We saw chance, the rapper, we saw a tribe called quest. We've seen a few other pockets of hip hop style this year on the show. And I've really enjoyed all of that. It's just this more contemporary, normal run of the mill hip hop that it just isn't doing anything for me. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's talk about weekend update this week. As always, we have our political run up front. There was a lot of fresh material because obviously we had the inauguration. So just ripe for comedy. What was your initial impression from the opening salvo for this week? This was a great, great weekend update. The best I've seen in a while, especially from Michael Che. And I think you, John, you were, I don't know if it was last episode or the episode before where you said that Michael Che is pretty much on fire. It was last episode. Yeah. Last episode. And he's continuing on into this, you know, the, uh, the Michelle Obama joke, the way he kept revisiting it, it was very much reminiscent of his stand-up style. He does like to do callbacks and stuff. You know, he's just making this whole format work for him so well. And he's, you know, he's meeting it halfway. Like he's conforming to it. The format's conforming to him. And I mean, you know, Colin Jost gets a shout out too. He's doing well, but, uh, I'm really hoping they hold on to Michael Che for a while. Yeah, I thought this was really good. This might be the best Che that we've seen this season. I think he really is figuring out how, like you said, to capitalize on what he has to work with at the desk. He always felt a little stifled and a little bit uh, just uneasy in past episodes. I'm not sure if that was just nerves or just it's hard to deliver jokes that you're not hundred percent confident in because you've really only seen them three or four times. There's a lot of reasons why weekend update can come off feeling a little shaky. I didn't get a lot of that this week. There was still, as always a little bit of fumbling. We don't have a Seth Meyers level of poise and control to weekend update, but we do have this week, some of the strongest writing that we have for the, the Jost and Che aspects of it that we've seen in a long time. And yeah, some of the loosest, most fun delivery from Che at least. So yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about this weekend update. Let's talk about Leslie Jones. She's here to review hidden figures, the movie about the women that helped NASA put men on the moon. <laughs> and obviously, you know, it devolves from there. Were you happy to see Leslie Jones? And did you feel this material was worth exploring at the desk? Was I happy to see Leslie Jones? No, not initially. Okay. I kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, Oh, another one. Cause like, I feel I've seen enough of just Leslie Jones being Leslie Jones. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I take it back and I take it back forever because <laughs> this was probably some of her best work on the show. This was one of her best uh, monologues or, or, or pieces she's done on weekend update. Leslie Jones is just an amazingly talented woman. She may do one thing, but she does it really well and can explore a lot of stuff with that you know, persona of hers. Yep. So I'm, I don't think ever again, I'm going to roll my eyes because she's able to spit fire every time she comes out and it's, it's always great. It was really funny stuff. Okay. Yeah. Now we don't have to just give her a blanket pass for all eternity. Leslie Jones stand up persona, that larger than life bombastic delivery. It really is a great vehicle. And when her writing is sharp, like when she can create a whole package for it, it has the potential to land really, really good. And this is a good example of that, but 
my feeling on her from day one was she really came out with some good, solid material. And then even though each visit to the desk was fun, it always felt like it was a little looser, a little weaker, just not quite what the previous outing was. And I felt that way right up until early in season 42, where I felt like it was a bit of an uptick. So I agree with you that this was one of the best. I think that she's been getting progressively better. And uh, I just hope that the trend continues. I really think that she's got a lot to, to bring with, with her voice and how she's able to take material and just weave it into a narrative that is just, it's saucy. (laughs) Saucy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was the fact that it always seemed to be about relationships. She was revolving around the same subject matter so much talking about her and men. Yep. Maybe that, that was getting tired for me. So, you know, there was a little bit of it in that, but it wasn't the forefront. It wasn't the center of focus. Yeah. Charles knows who he is. Yeah, that's pretty much all we got. But that was a perfect amount of spice to add to uh, a broader uh, subject matter. Yeah. I, I like that she's finding new ground to cover. This is what's breathing life back into what she does. I think she should explore that more and, and find out you know, where else she can take it. Yep. Yep. I'm sure we'll see some more fun stuff from Leslie over the rest of the season. Okay. Now there's a few more jokes. They had the Ringling Brothers joke where the animals get brought to sanctuaries and the clowns get released into the forest. That's not a smart joke, but I really love the little graphic they put up on the screen. Like that just, when I saw that, it just hit, like it was just punchy for me. Like I really, I really connected with that. And again, I think there's something about clowns that just like (laughs) goes right to the core of my being because every clown joke they've had on this show this season, it just knocks me over. (laughs) Clowns, man. Okay. Let's talk about Mikey Day as Jake Roshek, who is reporting live from the friend zone. The premise is brilliant. The friend zone being (laughs) a literal remote location where one of their correspondents is dealing with being in the midst of a platonic relationship with a girl that he's in love with. She's oblivious. She likes the bad boys. It is all the cliches rolled into one brilliant little scenario. And I thought it was great. What'd you think? Yeah, it was great. Brilliant use of on location reporting Mm -hmm. connected to something that a lot of guys can relate to (laughs) in that way. Like it was, it was absolutely brilliant. You know, once you make that connection and you get there, then as a comedy writer, you must be just, you must just be rolling around in gold coins because yep, you stumbled into something that writes itself. You could tell just how they weren't stretching. They weren't grasping for anything. Everything that they put up was like tried and true, a hundred percent surefire material that you instantly can connect with. This was great. This, this may have been maybe the high point of the show for me. There was a lot of highs this week, but I really thought this was great. Yeah. I I would love to see like a live, you know, like a by the minute reading of, of the ratings. Mm. (laughs) Cause I think at this moment, like halfway through this, uh, weekend update bit, I'd say a lot of guys turned off the TV to go have a quick cry. Sure. (laughs) I'd say a viewership went down a lot. Yeah. During this sketch. If Nielsen ratings could gauge how much a guy is squirming at any given point during a show, then yeah, this was hitting really close to home. I'm sure for a lot of guys and Mikey day plays it perfect. He's sincere and decent and soft, right? Like he has no edge to him. And so you, you understand why he's in the friend zone. He's not exciting or intriguing to this girl who loves the bad boys. And uh, he plays it perfect. Uh, Che asks him, you know, what's the hardest part about being in the friend zone? He's like, well, everything, (laughs) you know, like it's just, it's soul crushing for him. And, and he just, it all played. It all played. Yeah, it was great. 
you know what, before we move on though, I want to call attention to how brilliantly they wrapped up this sketch because right when you think there's nothing else for them to goof on, they make one of the smartest comedic moves that I've seen on weekend update in a long time. And they turn Che into the bad boy love interest of Cecily strong in front of Mikey day. So it's that much more heartrending to watch, you know, him just being beaten down a little bit more. And then Che comes out as a, as a jerk at the end of it and puts him in his place. He just says, what does he say? He just says like, be good to her or something like that. And Che's like, no man, that's your job. (laughs) (laughs) That, that, Oh man, that landed, that That really landed. Like I just burst out laughing and Che hit it. We, sometimes we critique Che for being a little, cringy when he's interacting with the featured people on update, but no, he was right in there, right? Like he played the character. He was doing the flirting. Like you could just, he had a smirk. He had a confidence. He had a bravado. Like he just, he, he knew exactly what he was supposed to do to make that hit. And yeah, it just, that whole thing fired. Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. Now post weekend update, we get the bedroom, which is Melissa Villasenor and Aziz Ansari want to spice things up and decide maybe to incorporate a little bit of dirty talk into their Sunday night lovemaking. How do we feel about the sketch? I think I actually mentioned this on the podcast. I don't know if you cut it, <laughs> but I literally said, I would love Melissa Vies and you to talk dirty to me <laughs> in that voice of hers. Yeah. You said, I'd like her to whisper sweet nothings in her uh, sexy froggy voice is what you said. Okay. And yes, I was censoring myself. That definitely made the cast. Now I remember I was, but that's pretty much what I meant. <laughs> Let's just be honest here. I was talking about her talking dirty to me. (laughs) Yeah, this was kind of a dream come true. Despite her complete ineptitude with speaking dirty? That kind of did it for me. That was was the icing on the cake. You are a rare bird, Steve. (laughs) Okay, so is this a fun premise for a sketch? Aside from your weird (laughs) personal enjoyment of the sketch, from a dispassionate critique, was this a good sketch? Absolutely. I think this was uh, quite possibly my favorite sketch of the night. Mm-hmm. All thanks to Melissa and her uh, her performance. It was a really interesting setup, and I think they really sold it well. You know, they made it also a vehicle for a couple of impressions of hers, which she hasn't really gotten a lot of chances yep. to showcase that, surprisingly. Yeah, it was um, Family Feud. On the premiere episode, she was able to do Sarah Silverman, but we haven't really seen anything else of what we're assuming she was hired to do, which is great. It's a shame that it's taken 12 episodes to get there, but it's really nice that we're starting to see it put to good use. And in a sketch where it fits, it's not tacked on. It it doesn't feel contrived. It makes sense why those impressions were there. And they actually were the crux to be able to bring the sketch to a good conclusion. Yeah. Like this was a perfect use of what Melissa can give to the show. And I'm really happy that she got this Yep, and that it made it to air. My only fear is that, you know, as nice as this was, I think the show wants consistency. I think they want to see someone that week over week is going to be having a presence in the show. And so 12 episodes in, we still can't say that she's like established herself and she's, she's a shoe in for another season. Uh, she's just really going to have to keep up the pace from here on out. And I hope they, they find more vehicles to highlight some of her impressions and give her those fun, awkward, goofy, quirky characters that are a fit for her natural persona too, so that it doesn't just have to be about her impressions. Yeah. There's still a, a lot of, a lot of questions with Melissa Villasenor, but this was promising. This was really, really fun. Absolutely. Okay. After the bedroom, we get five stars, a pre-tape about an Uber driver and an Uber passenger who both 
have a vested interest in upping their Uber score to hilarious results. You tell me hilarious. Yeah. I'd go as far as to say hilarious, not just funny. It had some kind of British vibe to it. Like this felt like a, a premise that you'd see on a British sitcom, mm-hmm. just a, a result of misunderstandings and, and uh, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. It is a situational yeah. bit of comedy. And I thought the results were good. I didn't find this as fantastic as some of the other bits in the show. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was, you know, appropriate that it made it into the show. It was solid, but just not groundbreaking. It, it was, the characters were fun. They had a, a fun little twist at the end where after a, you know, they, they find their common ground. The whole enterprise has been a success for both of them. They both got their five-star review. Then he runs them over. <laughs> That's the right way to exit it. And it felt like it was a good conclusion. We'd talked about Chandra and Malik last week and how it didn't find a successful way to exit the sketch and really maintain its premise throughout. I felt what worked about this one is that they were more sure footed about the character's intentions, what their angle was, and then again, how to get out in a way that didn't feel tacked on or weird or, or out of place. So this was definitely competent. That's what I took away from it. Yeah. I mean, that ending was even foreshadowed at the beginning Yeah, because he did, he did mention that he hit a kid one time. Yeah. So why is my rating so low? Well, there, there was that one time. Yeah. Yeah. They came up with a good organic ending to this sketch. Unlike Chandra and Malik. Yep. Now the real question is, can we bring it home? Can the, the back half of the show that tends to peter out, is there enough meat left on these bones to, to get us to the, the good nights and still feel like this was a win end to end. And in order to do that, we have pizza town which is a live sketch set in a dilapidated pizza parlor a la Chuck E. Cheese. You've got cops chasing down a perp and their intense dramatic meeting is interrupted by these animatronic performers. Do you feel like that was satisfying to watch play out? Like, was there any brilliance in this? Yeah, (laughs) this was a good run at something that's not totally cerebral. (laughs) You could do a lot of fun stuff with, this kind of premise and SNL has done animatronic centric uh, skits before. That's, that's something they've done with the love tunnel uh, sketch series that they've done before. Mm -hmm. There were some elements working here that, that were kind of original. I I really like Keenan's character, the cop that is kind of getting distracted by it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's caught up in the, the theatrics (laughs) of it. Yeah. Like when Kyle goes for his gun, Beck says, that's not a good idea. Keenan thinks he's talking about (laughs) Mary Nara being on tambourine instead of synth. Right, right, right. Pretty good stuff. One thing about this sketch is that it actually made me miss Taron Killam. Mm. When they did those love tunnel sketches, he was one of the animatronic models every time that it recurred. And he eerily was able to recreate that (laughs) behavior that, those animatronic models do at Disney world and what have you right to a scary level yep. of accuracy. He had a particular ability to use his physicality to seem creepy and just not quite human. <laughs> yeah. I miss him. Yeah. Cool. Now 10 to one sketch is a little unconventional. They have Cecily come out and sing to sir with love to president Obama. And then for the second verse, she's joined by Sashir. And then to bring that to a conclusion, they have a, 
awkward little exchange where they offer him a going away present their awkwardness when they give it to him just shows that there's a lot of respect and they just don't want to see him go. And there's just this endearing little moment that they tried to craft. What did you feel about this? Was this something we needed on the show? Was this appropriate? Was this the right time for it? It's always a hard line to walk when they do these kind of sentimental topical things. Was this a win? No, this was a loss. Okay. Explain. I hated this. I thought it was preachy. Like, I don't like when Saturday Night Live takes sides like this. You know, it's one thing to make fun of this politician or that politician, but to really say I pledge allegiance to to <laughs> one particular uh, figure, it's not their place to be that kind of a voice. Sure. Be a reflection of what's going on out there. But you know what? Like, it's taking on a stance that SNL has no place of doing when it is a public outlet for for anyone out there, whether they're Democratic or Republican or hover in between somewhere. I don't know. And don't <laughs> get me started. Like, that's just how I feel about doing a sketch like this. But like the actual execution of it is another thing. Sure. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I'm going to take counterpoint on that for a minute. You said that SNL is supposed to be an outlet like to sort of mirror what's going on in the public consciousness. I have seen a lot over the last few weeks where Obama and Biden have been, I think the word I used last week was lionized because their replacement is so distasteful to so many people. It has made them seem like they are just so much more wonderful than maybe people would have considered them under more normal circumstances. So is it maybe not that SNL is actually reflecting public sentiment in this, like this, this is the prevailing idea right now that everyone is mourning seeing Obama fly off into the sunset. Well, that's anybody left leaning is half the country, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) sure. You know, it's, it's not like he was some perfect deity, right? To put him on a pedestal like that and to make him seem infallible is, is it's very much one-sided and I think it's a little too heavy handed for the show to do. Yeah. And I, I really don't disagree with you when I was watching it. I felt the same way. I was trying to to look at it from both perspectives and say, well, is this the writer's biases on display or the show's biases on display, or is this just really tapping into something that's maybe a lot more obvious in the U S than maybe it is to us looking at it from the outside in Canada. But my final reaction on it was no, this is a reaction to how repellent Trump is to the creative forces behind the show. This is not a, measured or reasonable position that they're taking 20 years down the road when they're looking at Obama's legacy. I don't think he's still going to be as warmly received as he is right now, because you're not going to have the, the emotions that are tied up with the current political landscape coloring your view of him. So I think that the show missed an opportunity to really look at Obama reasonably you know, by going overboard with this kind of gushing, uh, love fest for him at the end of the show, I felt like it was a bit much, it was a bit heavy handed and it's not something that they've ever done for another president that I can think of. Even presidents that left office under great conditions. I've never seen the show, like you said, kind of take sides to that kind of degree. And I just didn't feel like it needed to be there. Well, it gave Sashir something to do. Yeah. And she saved the song as far as I'm concerned. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. Cecily came out a little bit under the note and wasn't quite able to find her footing with it. And then when they harmonized, Sashir pulled her up and then it was great. But the first half of it was a little, little pitchy dog, little pitchy. 
painful. <laughs> it was actually painful. Yeah. I kind of feel bad because they don't have a lot of time to rehearse and Cecily, she's a good enough singer. Yeah. She's one of the performers that tends to come out and warm up the crowd with Keenan. And there's lots of good things to say about Cecily, but for whatever reason, she just didn't find her footing. She may have performed it perfect in dress and just the first note doesn't come out. And all of a sudden you're just like not on the right track yeah. for the whole rest of the song. Yeah. I feel like that's what happened. Like, I, I'm sure she's got it in her to do a much better job than that, but yeah. you know, it's live television, yep. one shot and when the camera's on, it's whatever comes out. And, but I mean, this is, this is a lot of criticism for, I, I don't think it, I don't think the quality of the singing was what was going to make or break the sketch. I really think it came down to whether you felt sympathetic towards what they were saying or whether you are kind of opposed to it. And I think that's polarizing. I think it's too polarizing for the show. I think they forgot that not everybody has the same viewpoint as them. And so it, it's going to be polarizing and it's not necessarily the right balance that I feel the show should be striking. Yeah. The show has been a lot bolder in the past few months about feeling more partisan than it traditionally has. It really just comes down to your stripes, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Okay. So that is our run through. Let's talk about the moment of the night. What took it for you? Moment of the night. Yep. It's just one word really. Okay. Mm. <laughs> you really like that little callback that ran through weekend update. Yeah, that was, uh, that was killer. Yep. He got a solid laugh from, he, I think he did it three times and each one of them fired. So that was, that was definitely good. It was, I think it was having that graphic up there <laughs> alongside of it, having that look, because when I watched the inauguration speech, you know, Obama looked very, you know, he was, I'm sure he's not okay with all of this going on, but like he sat there and with a smile on his face, he was very presidential. Yeah. <laughs> he was presidential. Yeah. Michelle didn't really have it in her to uh, put that face on. She was pretty much scowling at him the whole time. And I found it hilarious. <laughs> that was already an image in my mind that amused me. Sure. So to have this, this, this look basically put into a vocalization to sum it up and to have it called back to a couple of times, like, yeah, it was definitely, definitely ended up being the moment of the night for me. Yep. Yeah. It was really great. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to give it to, Michael Che swoons Mikey Day's love interest at the end of Weekend Update in the friend zone. That to me just played out brilliantly. It was exactly the right way to end that sketch. And it just made me sit up and say, oh my goodness, like not only was it a great premise, not only did they mine it the right way, they really found a brilliant way to pull it back into Weekend Update. And it just, everything about it just sparkled for me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I liked it. I really liked it. Okay. So best overall sketch. So I'm, I'm torn between, uh, the, uh, Broderick and Gans sketch. Okay. And the, the bedroom sketch with Melissa, right? Both of them. Great. <laughs> the reason that I feel like I want to give it to the bedroom sketch is because I'm happy for Melissa. You know, I'm glad that she got this time to shine on the show. But, you know, that's being a little bit uh, biased. Sure. If I were to choose that over Broderick and Gans, I just got to be professional about this and say that Broderick and Gans was the best sketch. They took a really clever idea and got a lot of original creative material out of it. Yep. I would say it's definitely the smarter of the two as far as like the writing and complexity and kind of how it unfolds. But there is definitely something to be said about potty humor when it's executed brilliantly. 
you need the the performance to help sell the juvenile humor of it. And I felt like they really were able to sell it. And Melissa Villasenor in the moment, just her facial expressions and her acting being very quick to recognize when she's misfired and she's turned them off and kind of genuinely listening to him and trying to understand the the right way to, to fix the problem and approach it next time. Like she was just really playing the part. Yeah. If she hadn't have been doing as good a job as she was doing, the material couldn't have stood on its own. So I agree with you that the lawyer sketch was probably the superior one. I personally just not from a like cerebral standpoint, but just from a like goofy fun I'm charmed standpoint, had more fun with the bedroom sketch, but I'm not going to give it to either of them. I'm giving it to the Kellyanne Conway pre-tape. Okay. I know that it's not your bag, but I thought that that was smart, uh, well-produced, well-directed, a well-written song. I just didn't feel there was anything weak. So I'm going to give it to that. And that is well within your right to do. (laughs) And it was funny too. Like I felt like it it really was a, a fun vehicle to put Kate's Kelly and Conway into. And I, I just thought it worked. I thought it really worked. All right. Okay. So MVP. I'm excited for this because <laughs> I want to give it to someone who really deserves it this week. This is the first time I gi- I'm giving it to them. And I've definitely wanted this opportunity since they've come on the scene. I'm, I'm talking about Melissa. Okay. I've been rooting for, her. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just my hormones. I've just had a thing for Melissa Villasenor. I thought she was, I think she's talented. I think she's, you know, she's got something special about her. This is the episode where she takes a step up in the ranks and kind of is cutting out a a, a territory for herself. So Melissa Villasenor, you are my pick. (laughs) If you're listening, you are my pick for MVP. Okay. You know that I root for the future players too. And Melissa in particular, she has been really intriguing to both of us. We've had a lot to say about her trying to figure out if even her voice would play. Like we've had a lot more discussion about her than maybe say Alex Moffat or than Alex Moffat at this point in the season. But even though, you know, this is totally a matter of opinion, I can't, I can't really criticize it. I don't think having one good sketch, I don't know if that's really enough for me to think she's into MVP territory. I think it's enough for me to say she's into, oh, let's give her a second look. And I think her prospects for coming out of the season are better, but I don't think she's an MVP. I don't, I don't think if you, you stack up that sketch next to what Kate always does, you know, or what Beck always does. I don't think objectively you can really say she's an MVP, but I mean, if you have a crush on her and you just were really rooting for her and this just really was a fun moment for you. Great. <laughs> don't worry melissa he doesn't mean any of this if she's your most valuable player so be it i just don't think she's the show's most valuable player. that's all i'm saying that that said we both love melissa but i'm gonna give it to michael che this weekend update fired from start to finish this was one of the best outings that he's had with it and i think that for the first time in a long time he was really a strength to one of the features rather than kind of being the weak point. And so if we're likening this to a a sports game where someone just didn't fumble the ball and and just made the play, I feel like he really brought weekend update home. Yeah. You made a good pick there. Yeah. Michael Che, we don't often think of the weekend update anchors as, as having a pivotal role in the show overall. We just kind of think of them being in their, their little box, but I think the show was much better for weekend update this week on a scale of classic, great, 
typical week or train wreck, how would you rate this episode? Well, huh. It's either a great or a typical. Okay. If it weren't for that 10 to 1 sketch, I'd say it's probably a great episode. And it could certainly well be a, a, a great episode despite that. If I just think about it for a second. <laughs> take, take your time. We're not, we're not recording or anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this 10 to 1 sketch. I think this is one of the worst moments of the season. So, like, it does have the power to take <laughs> what would be a great episode and bring it down to a typical. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm, I'm not going to let that happen. This was a great episode. It was. You obviously had a much more visceral and negative reaction to the 10 to 1 than I did. I felt that it was just totally wrong for the show and not necessary and just a little self-indulgent. But even though I didn't need to see it and didn't want to see it, there was nothing that it could do to make me feel like this wasn't solid end to end and not just solid, but solid with great peaks. Whereas we've had other shows where you've got a weak sketch and a good sketch and a weak sketch and a good sketch. And so you kind of land marginally in the typical range. Whereas this was aside from that 10 to one, there was nothing that was below like good. Yeah. So I, I feel like it's positioned itself squarely into great territory. And Aziz Ansari was uh, a fantastic host Culturally speaking, I think we may look back on it with even more significance because of the timing and Aziz's monologue and just the general feeling that it captures. Yeah. Cool. Unless there's anything else to say, then that's a cast. Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. If you'd like to support our podcast, please consider using and bookmarking our Amazon and other affiliate links found at snlafterparty.fm. It costs you absolutely nothing to use our affiliate links when shopping online, but it really helps us in covering our costs and is greatly appreciated. We'll be back in two weeks when SNL returns with host Kristen Stewart and musical guest Alessia Cara. This has been episode number 13 of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. Thank you to Big Sean. Unbelievable. Thank you, everyone. Good night. But will you build my Ikea stuff? Uh, I'd love to. Uh, Michael, this is Shannon. Oh, hey, sorry I interrupted. Uh, you're so rude, Shannon. I can't believe you did that. <laughs> oh, my God. Shut up. Jake, your friend is a jerk. Um, but we should hang out. Get my number from Jake. Uh, oh, my gosh, Shannon. Stop telling me what to do. <laughs> Shut up. You are trouble. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wow, that was so much fun to be here for. I'm so pumped you guys flirted and made plans in front of me. Just, um, just always make sure you're there for her. Nah, Jake, that's your job. (laughs) 